Did you get everything out you needed to get out over there? <laughs> I think so. Please don't penetrate the K-hole. I'm Kevin Leeson. I'm gonna shoot that depression right out of my brain. I'm Joe Fulgham. You do not want Lars von Trier's prescription for depression. I'm Dr. Rob Tarswell. This episode's got extra zazz. I'm Torn Atkinson, and this is Caustic Soda. It's the Caustic Soda Podcast! Yay! It's time to set the mics up. It's time for Tales of Woe. It's time to take the red pill on the Caustic Soda Show. It's time to do our research, unless your name is Joe. It's time to load the wiki on the Caustic Soda Show. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it makes me very hungry to introduce to you Dr. Rob Tarswell! But now let's get things started. Why don't you get things started? It's time to get things started on the informational, aberrational, strangulational, nauseational, strap in for the caustic soda show. Okay, so we cover a lot of topics that are touchy and personal for, I think, a lot of our listeners, and we make fun of those subjects. And this is one that I found kind of uncomfortable researching. And so mm. I, I kind of want to get this out in advance. Sure. Can we talk about that in advance? Let's do. Should we introduce our guest? Yeah, let's because do Because it's relevant. Okay. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, it's Dr. Rob. Either that or Fat Albert, one or the other. <laughs> yes. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, only on a podcast would Dr. Rob be mistaken for Fat Albert. Precisely. <laughs> there are a great many attributes that are completely wrong. Well, we got a listener uh, a listener mail, which was actually a uh, comment on our psychosis episode, mm-hmm. which was the last one that you guessed it on, I believe, or the second last one. That's right. And I'll just read it. I recently downloaded Caustic Soda, and I think that the topics you guys cover are really interesting. I was distressed, however, about your choice of topics for your episode on psychosis and specifically on postpartum depression. After I had my son, I suffered from this condition, not a psychosis, and it was a very terrifying experience to have no control over the state of my mind and how I felt. There were times during the show where you guys laughed and seemed to have a cavalier attitude about the woman who killed her children. I hate to be a complainer, but knowing even a little bit of what this woman went through, it is nothing to make fun of or cast in a humorous light in any way. It is an absolutely dark and desolate experience where ending your life seems like a good solution. I can only imagine the pain that her husband and family experienced after losing their children, wife, and daughter. I am fine now and got the help that I needed. My son and I are healthy and happy. Like I said, I really enjoy your show and think the topics you discuss are really interesting. Please, in the future take more sensitivity to issues such as this thanks melanie i agree with almost everything she said she's not wrong yeah but i wouldn't go so far as to say she's entirely right i mean i don't think when we crack wise that we're necessary by by definition being insensitive we could definitely be more sensitive but i think we could also be less entertaining (laughs) 
And to me, for me personally, I kind of started this podcast to have fun. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not here to stir controversy. Right. Or, no. or to be to specifically be insensitive to people. Mm-hmm. Was she talking about the discussion of Andrea Yates? I, we did discuss her. She's the one who. No, she's the one who drowned, drowned her children. children. Drowned yeah. Her children. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which I think it was like five of them or something like that. Yeah, and he, she right. had to like chase down the nine-year-old and catch him in order yeah. to yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so first off, she said it wasn't a psychosis. That was definitely a postpartum psychosis. There are two postpartum conditions classically recognized: postpartum okay. depression and so postpartum psychosis. So maybe she psychosis. was specifying for her that it wasn't a psychosis. Hers was yeah. not psychosis. Right. Okay, that was that was how I, I heard the letter. I don't recall us being uh, especially insensitive around that particular topic. If anything, maybe I think we we're were less insensitive, and some of our listeners, because they've had a personal experience, are maybe heightened sensitivity. Yeah, I oh, mean, fair point. I personally love being grossed out. I love gallows humor. The things we joke about are horrible. Yeah. That's yeah. that's kind of our mandate. Uh, yeah. I, when I started this podcast, I didn't imagine that I would only be talking about the gross things that I liked, like mucus and parasites and seven foot long bowel movements and stuff like that. <laughs> I knew we would cover topics or aspects of topics that would make me feel uncomfortable, like sexism and rape and alcohol and, and cancer and mental illness, some and, of which I have had to dealt with personally. And Ted Bundy and slavery. Oh, yeah. and Yeah, uh, exactly. But things that I think they're really interesting, entertaining aspects. To I think you could pick almost any topic we do and somebody in the world could say, that's not funny. Absolutely. Like, like the slavery episode, we cracked a lot of jokes there. Slavery's not funny. Like yeah. really. My attitude is if we don't laugh, we're going to cry. I think there's a lot of value in looking at these horrible things. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of value in recognizing that there is humor in horrible things. Yeah. Life is full of horror and orgasms aside, there's no happy <laughs> endings for anyone. <laughs> but I think to try to sweep death and pain uh, and fear under the rug doesn't really improve the quality of life for anyone no. in the long run. I don't want to make fun of a person suffering from something they can't help. I do not want to make fun of that woman. I do not want to make fun of the, the suffering of her children, and I want to be as empathetic as I can towards her plight and the horrible thing that happened for something that she couldn't help. But at the same time, if there's jokes around there that can help some of us handle that horrible news, it's going to happen. Because if you can't laugh at raping thalidomide babies during the Holocaust, what can you laugh about? I hear that, guys. Mm-hmm. I don't think I can laugh about that. <laughs> And Torin just did. <laughs> black comedy is black comedy, right? Uh, yeah, I, I think our entire show needs a trigger warning. In fact, I right. think if we didn't call it caustic soda, we could have called it trigger warning. Right. Uh, that might have actually been. That might have actually been one of the the names that we were throwing around. And we are not for everyone. We are absolutely not for yeah. everyone. And if any listener comes to a point where they decide that it's too much or they have been offended, right. you don't have to listen to us. Right. And that's fine. We're totally fine with that. I, if I you would... want to step back because you, yeah. you just can't handle it. I hope that we tip the scales. That as many times as we may offend you, we will make you laugh ten times more. Good point. Well, and not just laugh, but also open your eyes uh, to other things that might be similar. Yeah. Like, for example, pointing out that while the postpartum depression makes somebody feel very personally about us laughing yeah. at, at a similar subject, there are other subjects that other people are going to feel very personal about that yeah. they are going to cringe and feel bad about. And I have friends who have said, I haven't listened to this episode and don't plan right. to. 
because of whatever, and yeah. that's and I I don't pressure them to listen to episodes that they don't want to listen. I to. I pressure my smoking friends reasons. to listen to our tobacco episode <laughs> because fuck that reason. Listen to our tobacco episode and quit smoking. But other than that, yeah, I, there are certain things you're going to want to avoid. And maybe what we could do is could we set up maybe a, a new tag on our on our site trigger warning and sure. have a list of things. And I don't know if I'm the one to figure out what those are, but maybe I can get uh, our users to suggest this should have a trigger warning for these subjects. And so if people want to say that episode needs a trigger warning, email me info at causticsodapodcast.com and I will edit the post for that entry and put the trigger warning. How's that sound? That works for me. Uh, Sure. Now, I didn't discuss this previously with you guys. And Uh this is an idea I had as well. Okay. Okay. just to prove that I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is, mm-hmm. do you guys want to have any donations we receive for the time this episode is up, the week that this episode is up, go directly to the Canadian Mental Health Association? Let's do it. Sure. Absolutely. I'm yeah. down with that. Okay. While this episode's up, if you go to causticgear.com and you buy season one, which we have up there for 10 bucks, and uh, if you don't want to spend 10 bucks, you can get it for free there. The $10 is really a way to go. Thank you for season one, Caustic Soda. But if you buy it on the store, you can then download it. We give you the link uh, to get it through the RSS feed. And any purchases made while this episode is up, we are going to donate all that money to the Canadian Mental Health Association. Association. And I will personally match up to 100 bucks. All right. All right. Wow. I'll throw in a second match. Oh, there you go. Up to 500 Oh, wow. No pressure, guys. <laughs> Some of us are less poor than others. So, yeah, I had to step out for a second, so I missed the discussion about sensitivity, trigger warnings, and so forth. And one of the things uh, I, We basically said, fuck all of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I really like about coming on this podcast is the ability to discuss topics which I think are really important, which I think there's a lot of misinformation mm-hmm. about in a public education kind of a way which is non-threatening. Right. And I think there's something very disarming about humor. Are you, are you suggesting that we, or that we secretly implant inf- real information into people's brains? Where I, they... I think he's Des- bang on right. Yeah. Despite your best efforts, <laughs> perhaps even despite your best intentions, yes. Well, I yes. think the entertainment value, of course, leads more people to listen. And when more people listen to us be empathetic about that woman and what happened to her, even though we're cracking jokes, I think we're opening a lot of eyes to people who would have thought of her as a monster and who would have thought of her as evil and not have been able to understand the underlying reasons that she was completely had no control over that caused her to do what she did, right? If you, if you didn't listen to that episode, you didn't get that. And I think that the value of that totally outweighs the jokes that we make surrounding that subject. And so a response to uh, this letter is to do an episode on depression. Yeah. <laughs> With a trigger warning. Yeah. This one and will... a donation button. <laughs> right. So uh, I personally don't feel like I've ever been depressed in my life. Like You mean, I, oh, you mean clinically? You've, you've been sad. Okay, let me ask you this, Dr. Rob. Uh, say you break up with a girlfriend. Say, potentially, they cheated on you and broke up with you over Facebook. Uh, <laughs> I'm certain just that's just never theory. happened and, to you, Kevin. Uh, no, hypothetically. Uh, you, uh, you, you were pretty bummed out about it several days, nay, maybe even weeks. Would uh, would that count as crossing over into depression, or is that just uh, you know feeling low? Well, that'd be a pretty natural reaction, I would think. What would make it start heading towards depression would be if you got low to the point where you couldn't get it out of bed, or you couldn't get into work, or your friends started noticing a personality change, your hygiene starts to decline. So markers of functional decline would be what would get my antenna uh, going up. But yeah. I would expect you to look exactly like somebody 
who has depression. And if I didn't know the backstory and I was just asking you a symptom survey and not asking you about time course, not asking you about triggers, I would certainly expect you to have low mood, irritability, loss of interest, loss of energy, feelings of worthlessness, problems with sleep, feeling slowed down, low energy, low concentration, maybe some changes in your appetite, maybe you even lose a couple of pounds. You might even entertain a couple of passive suicidal thoughts. So in terms of just the syndrome itself, sure, it would look identical, but I would expect that you would rally from that on your own relatively quickly and without any evidence other than very brief uh, functional decline. The number mm-hmm. I've heard wow. for, for a lot of websites is two weeks. If your symptoms are like two weeks long, then, it's, then you're more likely to be clinically depressed as opposed to just bummed out. That's the DSM definition of a major depressive episode. And of course, that's somewhat arbitrary, but you have to draw the line somewhere. So if in roughly that would be sort of two standard deviations above the mean for an average group of 100 people, if 100 100 people get dumped on Facebook, (laughs) uh, we would expect 95 of them to be feeling a bit better within two weeks. The five who aren't, um, some of them might still be normal. They might just be slow recoverers, but a few of them might just sort of fall off the cliff into full-on mm. depression as a result. I think if 100 people get dumped on Facebook, That's I, may a typical to, day. I may have to switch <laughs> to, to uh, another uh, well, social media network for a bit. <laughs> if 100 of your friends did, yeah. that would be a pretty eerie coincidence. Oh, God, imagine the news feed. Imagine the news feed will look like. Well, then think of all the rebound sex. (laughs) I know. You would just be like, well, wait a minute. You and you are in the same city and you're bummed. Go. Uh. The word origin of depression comes from Latin D meaning down and premier to press. So to press down. Okay. And as a clinical term in psychology, it only comes from about 1905. Psychology isn't that old a science, right? So it wouldn't be from the 15th century in the clinical term because we used to think that our emotions came from our feet. Yeah. (laughs) Or that Aristotle thought the brain was a radiator. Oh, right. So. Oh, like uh, just created heat? Just noted to to get rid of heat. Oh, Uh, right. (laughs) Because it's full of blood vessels and it's furthest from the ground. (laughs) Yeah. So it just regulates your temperature. Okay. I've got a bit of a. Interesting theory. I've got a bit of a history of depression and what we thought of it. Uh, Depression used to be known as melancholia, okay. which is derived from ancient Greek melas meaning black and kole meaning bile. So of course oh, it was oh, the humorous, right? Yeah. Melancholia was described as a distinct disease with particular mental and physical syndromes by Hipp- Hippocrates in his aphorisms, where he characterized all, quote, fears and despondencies if they last a long time, end quote, as being symptomatic of the ailment. So as far back as that, they realized hey, sometimes people get unnaturally bummed out for a long time. I thought it was when you made a salad out of cauliflower and melons. <laughs> Sad oh. trombone. Dun, dun, Spell, spelled a little differently. Oh, Sounds okay. the same on a podcast. The 11th century Persian physician Avicenna described melancholia as a depressive type of mood disorder in which the person may become suspicious and develop certain types of phobias. Mm. Is it ironic that Avicenna sounds like an antidepressant? Ask mm. your doctor is that, is if that... Avicenna is right for you. Precisely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this Babylonian shows up, this ancient Babylonian, start talking gibberish. Per- and... Persian. Hey, I'm Avicenna. What can I do for you? Ah, you're not right for me. <laughs> he would probably Get be... Get out of my house. <laughs> Side effects include bad jokes. <laughs> in the Christian environment of medieval Europe, a malaise called acedia, sloth or absence of caring, was identified involving low spirits and lethargy, uh, typically linked to isolation. 
Then the seminal scholarly work of the 17th century English scholar Robert Burton's book, The Anatomy of Melancholy, drew on numerous theories and the author's own experiences. Burton suggested that melancholy could be combated with a healthy diet, sufficient sleep, music, and, quote, meaningful work, along with talking about the problem with a friend. As long as it's not goth music. This is Bauhaus. Like, it's like, not bad. That's surprisingly modern. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. very modern. And what century was he from? 17th century. So 16 something. Yeah. Now everybody probably thought he was a quack, right? <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> well, they just talking about a problem is going to make it go away. No, you need to uh, beat pray down. Pray harder. Yeah, pray harder or pray. beat down the toad that lives in his belly <laughs> that is uh, angered by oh, the, the sadness toad. Yeah. Too, too much black bile. Mm. <laughs> the sadness toad and all of its fear tadpoles. <laughs> During the 18th century, the humoral theory of melancholy was increasingly challenged by mechanical and electrical explanations. References to dark and gloomy states gave way to ideas of slowed circulation and depleted energy. German physician Johann Christian Heinroth, however, argued melancholia was a disturbance of the soul due to moral conflict within the patient. Okay. Oh, I know. It's this thing that we haven't proven exists. Just right. need some soul therapy. Yeah. My soulometer reads this as being quite low. <laughs> We totally need to invent a solometer, by the way. No. It's my, one of my favorite words to pull out whenever people mention soul. Oh, if you get a solometer, how many souls does that register? So but this this whole uh, you know soul theory of melancholy uh, yeah. is actually like 100 years after the guy who pretty much thought of psychoanalysis. Who seemed to, yeah, who seemed to kind of understand, you know, get some exercise, talk to people, do useful things. Get out of the house and yeah. you know, I'll, I'll, do although, something that gives you a, a reason for being. To give him credit, the idea of uh, internal conflict as a driver of depression Mm -hmm. is i mean i I don't know if i'd go so far as to say your soul's out of balance your soul's out of balance but but but, uh, but that's sort of an important idea right right. it's sort of a like a a a primitive idea it's a shorthand word to describe yeah he's kind of getting towards ideas of the unconscious your personality maybe maybe he just said soul so he wouldn't get burned at the stake yeah yeah right? exactly <laughs> you know maybe he just didn't want to be tried as a witch I, yeah right? soul, soul is a pretty good word for when you've got to describe a super complicated essence of a person and yeah yep. as long as you don't think of it as a dualist thing i'm fine and that might have been the, you know the the just the, the, I'm parlance the colloquialism for yeah. mind yeah mm-hmm. german psychiatrist emil kraepelin may have been the first to use depression as the overarching term referring to different kinds of melancholia as depressive states English psychiatrist Henry Maudsley proposed an overarching category of affective disorder. This was in the late uh, 19th century. These are now contemporaries of Freud kind of thing. Right. This is right. coming on Freud. So in the 20th century, once all these things got put into this one uh, overarching disorder, there was a lot of discussion going back and forth on what it meant. Freud had his theories. Kraepelin was the father of psychiatric classification. He was the first guy that actually looked at and, and, and recorded detailed histories of individuals who had various psychiatric disturbances and began to tease them apart into different patterns. So talk about like root causes and stuff like that? Well, not even root causes. He assumed the causes were neurological or neuropathological, but he was looking at the symptoms themselves to try and see if there were distinct symptom syndromes, Mm. which he assumed would be linked to distinct neuropathological causes. But he said the first order of business, we've got to get these causes together. So he was the first one that would have described what he called dementia precox, which we now refer to as schizophrenia, made a meaningful separation between that symptomatically and what we now call uh, bipolar disorder. And this is an important distinction 
because up until around the time of Kraepelin, insanity was just insanity, and it was all lumped. Everybody went to the madhouse. Everybody went to the yeah. madhouse. It was all lumped together, and nobody really bothered paying much attention to it because yeah. mm-hmm. uh, it didn't really affect the upper classes. This is why, ah, ha, ha. Right. This is why in, in, in uh, Amadeus, Salieri is in with the people who poop themselves, right? Because he's, like, you know, really ticked off and bummed out. And uh, but everyone just goes to the madhouse. So Kraepelin pays close stop att- nut job shop. <laughs> he, he pays close attention to what we call the phenomenology of a psychiatric disorder, which is the specific expression of symptoms. And then Maudsley, building on top of Kraepelin, says not only are there mood disorders and psychotic disorders, but these mood disorders seem to have distinctions between them as well. So actually paying attention. That 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 was his <laughs> writing things down, yeah. taking <laughs> taking notes and, and taking human beings with psychiatric conditions seriously as human beings. Don't just suffering. put them all behind this door. Well, it's the first time that medicine looked optimistically at psychiatric disorders because the idea is if we can classify it, then we can find the cause, and then we can maybe address the cause. So they looked at it optimistically. You mean they looked at it through their eyes? <laughs> looked at it with a view to understanding and curing. Oh, okay. all right. Which was the first. I like mine better. <laughs> <laughs> Opticumalistically is what you're thinking of. Oh, right. Well, Kraepelin and Freud are, are sort of the two principles of the, of the big battle of 20th century psychiatry. What One, about, wait, what about if Cronenberg has taught me anything? It's actually between Freud and Jung. No, Freud battle. and Jung had a personal dispute, but essentially were anchored solidly within psychoanalytic Was theory. it about a girlfriend? Okay. Yeah. Jung and Freud are centimeters apart, but... Freud and Kraepelin are miles apart. Okay, mm. in what way? Kraepelin, who is the father of psychiatric nosology, which nosology? is the classology. Yeah, the, the naming classification okay. of things. That's not as interesting as I thought it was. <laughs> no, no. And this this would have been the the start of what these days would be termed biological psychiatry, which is the attempt to understand psychiatric disorders in terms of the neural substrate and then target that neural substrate with the use of medications and other kinds of uh, physical interventions. Neural substrate, you mean brain? Yeah. Okay. Just making Um, sure. Yeah, yeah. Freud concluded that neuroscience was too primitive, and he abandoned the attempt, Mm. and then began to phrase things in terms of psychoanalytic theory, depth psychology theories, with the proviso, he said, that at some point, biological sciences will become sufficiently advanced that it may sweep away this entire hypothetical framework. That sounds ridiculously reasonable. Freud was ridiculously reasonable. Wow. You should read Freud and not read what people say about Freud. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he posited a psychoanalytic explanatory apparatus for symptoms, whereas Kraepelin said, let's just focus on the symptoms, classify these disorders in terms of symptomatic subtypes. So it was sort of the difference between trying to spot all the different kinds of butterflies by the patterns on their wings and then being the guy that tries to explain where all the butterflies come from, Okay. right? Okay. The DSM was this back-and-forth battle to not only describe disorders, but to postulate theoretical origin of the disorders. The DSM-3 was the first major break in 1980 from anchoring disorders in terms of an explanatory hypothesis, and it said, no, screw that. We are just going to describe disorders symptomatically. Okay. Now, the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders. Correct. It's basically the big book of, well, I don't want to say crazy, because that's, <laughs> but it's, it's the big book of mental disorders. That's right. Yeah. That's right. The ongoing battle back and forth within psychiatry is, should we just be attempting to classify disorders, or should we be attempting to understand where these disorders come from 
in the biological, psychological, and social origin of somebody who's who's afflicted. And that's that's a battle that's not really anywhere close to being solved. Everybody recognizes, yes, there are origins of psychiatric disorders, mm-hmm. but it's not at a point where we can posit a single unified, elegant theory of the origin of psychiatric disorders. But like, it's like but, people are complicated or something. But imagine, we, yes. Yeah. But we do know that butterflies come from caterpillars. We yeah. We've more okay. or less nailed that one. Be- All right. Yeah. So people are more complicated than butterflies, I think, is what we can say. So, so the the term major depressive disorder was introduced by a group of U.S. clinicians in the mid 1970s and was incorporated into the DSM three in 1980. Yeah. So major depressive order has only been around for thirty some odd years. Before that, everyone As, was happy. Uh, <laughs> well, no, they had melancholia. <laughs> oh, right. right. Is it time for Victor Faction? It is. Depression is just conventional unhappiness? Uh, Wait, which which is which in Victor Faction? You can just snap. That's fiction. You can just snap out of it? I'm going to say that's fiction. By thinking positive? I'm going to say that that's fiction because that's actually, isn't that the difference between being bummed out and actually being clinically depressed? You can't just snap out of it? Yeah, you can't just snap out of it. Although you'll have no shortage of family members and Mm well-meaning friends tell you that. So has anybody (laughs) ever... You know, been clinically depressed and completely independent of any sort of outside uh, agency just Just snapped snapped out of it. Well, they wouldn't snap out of it, but the natural history of depression, meaning what would happen to it if it was untreated, sort of depression in the wild. The natural history of depression, a depressive episode lasts about a year. Wow. All right. Typically, do you slowly get better or do you just kind of reach a day where all of a sudden you go, what am I doing? I need to have a shower. Or or is it just statistically something awesome happens to everybody like once a year and then that awesome thing you're like, oh, life is awesome. I don't need to be bummed out anymore. No, they slowly get better. Okay. Okay. Can you just pop an antidepressant and fix it? Yes. Uh, (laughs) That depends what we're talking about. In terms of prescribed antidepressants like the SSRIs, which are the, the, the ones that everybody's heard of, or the SNRIs, or the NDRIs, I've or only the MAOIs, so or the TCAs, blah, 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 blah. No. But if you have depression and I give you intravenous ketamine in a controlled setting. Uh, I was going to uh, say, isn't that a narcotic? I, it's an anesthetic uh-huh. uh, used yeah. by vets. And it's also Horse used, tranquilizer. And it's also used at sort of the nastier raves to really give mm. you that extra bump. That will temporarily lead to complete remission. Temporarily meaning like a minute or temporarily meaning like hours? Oh, I Okay. See. Well, so if you only need to be happy for a couple of hours, ketamine is the answer? Well, the other thing you can do is we can take people with depression and sleep deprive them all night. And by the morning, oh. their depression is lifted. But as soon as they <laughs> sleep and wake up, they're depressed again. Wow, that's interesting. That is- so yeah, interesting a, is a, the only word I can think of. Getting uh-huh. sleep is more important than being unhappy. <laughs> Eventually, you're going to lose the battle for sleep. Yeah, <laughs> okay. unless hearkening okay. back, you've got fatal familial hypersomnia. Okay, you know, insomnia, right? okay. I, I and depression is just a drop in the bucket. <laughs> okay, I've got a story in my head from this already. It's about a guy who suffers from depression, but understands that if he doesn't sleep, he can function, and he spends his entire life staying as awake as long as he could, as he can. Then he goes to sleep, gets depressed, and then tries to stay awake until he gets better. And so he goes through these crazy ups and downs of trying to deal with his life. And maybe he's a detective. And he gets and he's dig- got a, a sidekick. <laughs> yeah, a sidekick called Crystal Meth. Ooh, well, how do you think he stays awake? <laughs> exactly, precisely. Uh, depression is a woman's problem. Uh, I would say depression is everyone's. It's, it's everyone's problem. problem. It's, it's not not a woman's what problem. What about a baby's problem? Oh. Well, you know, these days that's less common. 
But in the 1950s and earlier, mm. it would be very common if an infant or a young child needed to be admitted to the hospital, you just hand the child over to the hospital. And, and you wouldn't see them again until they were ready to leave the hospital. Okay. And a very enterprising oh. uh, social worker, I believe, or a psychoanalyst, I think his name was Renee Spitz, made a movie called John, A Young Boy Goes to the Hospital. And it documented in meticulous detail this kid absolutely sliding into terrible depression after protesting and wailing. How old was this child? Two. For his parents, and this was typical. So this guy just wanted to document one case of what happens. So the child went through a protest and then withdrew. And then on reunification with his parents was was just unresponsive to them. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it was like an abandonment thing. It's like, absolutely, Absolutely. It was very destructive to his attachment. This led to radical changes in the way that children's hospitals allow parents and other primary caregivers to interact with the children during the hospitalization. Now, is there a cutoff for this? Like when you're 35 and you have to go in the hospital without your parents? Does this also happen? I'm pretty sure I could manage it. I don't know about um, you, Kevin. I have, I have attachment problems. Your mom's in the next room, after all. <laughs> you bring her everywhere you go. I, I'm, I'm being carried around an adult side Bjorn right now. Would you like some more cookies, dear? <laughs> your mom's British, right? Kevin, yeah. stop laughing at those horrible people's horrible afflictions. Although the information I have here is women reportedly suffer from depression twice as much as men. Depression does affect men as well. In fact, men have a higher successful suicide rate than women do because certain cultures discourage men from discussing their feelings, asking for help, or showing weakness. People mistakenly believe that depression is a disease only affecting women. Take that, women. We're more successful at (laughs) killing ourselves. Anything uh, you can do, I can do better. (laughs) Well, it's like at at, um, stadiums now, they're putting in like double the number of women's washrooms because they have smaller bladders. So this is kind of the same thing. Well, also, you can't give them a trough like we have. (laughs) I don't know if women are aware of what the trough is, but yes, it's what you think it is. Mm, Yeah. Except not for eating. And indeed, men are more successful at suicide because men typically choose more lethal means, such as uh, hanging and shooting. Or or doing a uh, Tony Scott, a header off of a really high bridge. Hanging and shooting are by far the most common uh, Mm. methods of suicide chosen by men. Women will more commonly choose overdose. Uh, Women are often more likely than men to experience classic depression symptoms, such as feelings of sadness, worthlessness, and guilt. Men who are depressed are more likely to be irritable and angry and sometimes abusive. They are more likely to lose interest in their work or hobbies, but throw themselves into their work to avoid dealing with depression. Men are more likely than women to have difficulty sleeping. They're also more likely to turn to drugs or alcohol when they are depressed. Which is that downward spiral thing, because, of course, alcohol is a depressant. Well, alcohol is a pharmacologic CNS depressant. Uh, CNS? Central nervous system depressant. That means it just slows down uh, activity and conduction of neurons. That's not the same thing as a psychological depressant. Mm. As we discussed in the alcohol episode. Mm-hmm. But okay. you would all... That we all none of us really <laughs> remember I that much. I have no memory. Yeah. <laughs> Fict or faction, depression is a disease. Uh, I think that's pretty much... I mean, there's a DSM, for God's sakes. It's well, a, yeah. I mean, it depends manual. on what you mean by disease, but yes. That's sort of a philosophical question. It depends how you define the concept of a disease, and one of the raging battles of psychiatry is our psychiatric disorders, diseases in the way that a broken thigh is a disease. There's a broken broad, thigh isn't a disease? Come a, on. <laughs> so there's a broad spectrum of opinion from very concrete interpretations like Thomas Zaz, who would say that... Isn't he a Batman villain? Did you say his last name was Zaz? S-Z-A-S-Z. Like, He's as, Hungarian. <laughs> as in Pizzazz. 
No. <laughs> Who <laughs> he, he had a decidedly lack of zazz, unfortunately. Well, he's just recently deceased, so yes. Oh, and he, oh and he's, he's all zazzed out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's famous for, in the 1960s, writing a, uh, a book called The Myth of Mental Illness. And he was a psychoanalyst and, and practiced psychoanalysis for many years after writing The Myth of Mental Illness. And he said, okay, first of all, if a lesion is found, we give it to the appropriate medical specialty, such as neurology or immunology, and they treat the inflammation or they treat the vascular disorder, and boom, you're cured. So that wasn't a mental disorder. So by definition, everything that's left over that we can't find lesions for, we give to the psychiatrist, and we call them mental disorders. Lesion or no lesion. Right. And he said, by definition, a mental disorder can't be a disease because of the way we carve it up in actual practice. Okay. That led to a lot of philosophical exploration about the concept of mental disorder. And it's a, that was kind of the opening kick in the, in the battle in the mid-60s, late 50s. That, I can't let go of the fact that I really want this guy's kids to all have first names that start with P. P. Zaz. I haven't been able... I need to get that off my chest. I wasn't able to You focus. haven't been listening to a word oh. we've been saying. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Zaz came out. focused. <laughs> so the answer is there are clear lesions in some cases, like, say, dementia. And schizophrenia. In, and in some cases... Uh, no, there's, there's actually not very much that I can point to biologically in schizophrenia. Oh, okay. I saw a show on uh, Discovery or something that talked about how they were doing like functional MRIs and schizophrenics and seeing that their brains were actually different. Yeah, the function is different, but I can't go in there and say, oh, look, there's a tumor or, oh, look, here's inflammation or, oh, look. I, th- I thought they said that they could like look at schizophrenic brains and they looked different. Well, that's different function, right? So okay. that's, that's software problems. But you open the case and look at the motherboard, the motherboard is fine. Now this, said, like, it had this, <laughs> it, it, this show literally was talking about like that, that, that schizophrenics had like brain atrophy and stuff like that. And that there was like... Some cases. So there's all kinds of schizophrenics with perfectly normal looking brains, okay. morphologically, structurally. Where Thomas Zaz is the psychiatrist and academic, Victor Zaz, spelt Z-S-A-S-Z, as opposed to S-Z-A-S-Z, so they reversed the S-Zs. Uh-huh. Uh, Victor Zaz is a Batman villain from Arkham <laughs> Asylum. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Gee, I wonder. So Joe wasn't listening to anything Dr. Related. Rob said either. Interesting. <laughs> he was focused on Batman villains. I was <laughs> listening. I wasn't understanding, but I was listening. So it sounds like this is a bit of fict and a bit of faction. Got it. Is it genetic? There is definitely strong heritability in most psychiatric disorders. I read uh, by 10 to 15% increases your risk if you have a parent or grandparent. Depression would be among the less heritable disorders. Uh, bipolar disorder would be among the highest. Psychopathy also is highly heritable. And this is independent of raising as well, right? Like yeah, if, this if, is, if you give your kid right. up for adoption and they get raised by somebody who doesn't have bipolar, they still have that increased chance. Right. right. But of course, say in the case of the classic example being schizophrenia. Even if you look at identical twins, only 50% of schizophrenics from a twinship, only 50% of the non-index twin will have schizophrenia. So clearly there's more to the story than just genes. Hmm. And that's the strongest association we have. Uh, And how long does therapy last for typically? Average, maybe 12 to 15 sessions. If you're looking at a course of cognitive uh, behavioral therapy or interpersonal therapy, often somebody will need to come back you know they'll 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 either need maintenance therapy or they'll relapse because depression is typically a relapsing remitting it's problem like, throughout life. It's like life. changing the oil in your car. You just got to come back in every six months just to get a uh, exactly you know get get relubed. Exactly right. And Victor faction, all goths are depressed. <laughs> I'm not touching that one. <laughs> they're all pretending to be depressed if they're not. 
If I'd been born in the 12th century, I wouldn't have to turtle wax the van. <laughs> it's the Saturday Night Live golf talk. I love those guys. I've got a few major signs of depression. You can speak to this if uh, you have something to point out. Persistent feelings of sadness and worthlessness for at least two weeks. Again, the two weeks thing. Lack of interest in previously enjoyed activities. Frequent breakdowns and crying episodes. This is rarely witnessed firsthand despite common media depictions. Sleeping too much or being unable to sleep. Unexplained frequent aches or pains due to the immune system shutting down. The opposite of a placebo effect. Placebo effect is that you cure by eating sugar pills. But if you're depressed, your immune system starts to shut down and you get other sicknesses because you're depressed. I'm not sure if a placebo increases your immune system, though. The opposite of the placebo effect is the nocebo effect, where giving uh, an inert substance actually causes symptoms rather than reduces symptoms. Okay. That's what you're thinking of, maybe. Yeah, I'm just making it up as I go along. I don't know if you've figured this out yet, Dr. Rob. I assume you've heard the show before. Welcome to Caustic Soda. And changes in appetite and the subsequent weight gain slash loss. I've got an odd story from 1951. This was in a Time magazine. I found out about it from crack.com. One of my favorite websites. I've tried to find a citation for this to see if it actually happened. Take it with a grain of salt. Right. But Time magazine did run this in apparently 1951, and then Cracked found the information and posted it again. The Major, a 55-year-old British Army veteran who, after returning to civilian life, became, quote, bad-tempered and depressed, began drinking excessively and slid further and further into debt until one morning he got out of bed, dressed himself well, combed his hair, and shot himself through the brain with a thirty-eight revolver. Oh. oh, so much for the Major. Then he cooked breakfast. What? His wife found him later that morning, and we're not sure why she didn't hear the gunshot, or maybe that's how she found him. Again, I can't find the details. The ladies were always out shopping in the 50s. Oh, there you go. Mm -hmm. He was eating calmly with blood leaking out of both sides of his head. (laughs) After being brought to the hospital, the major was kept as an inpatient for five months, during which time he recovered nicely, but was a bit disoriented. So this is like a bullet uh, trepanation here. Once he was released, the major no longer suffered from his previous symptoms of depression, moodiness, and delusions. He didn't even remember shooting himself and denied that it ever happened. <laughs> oh, nice. So in a really screwed up twist, he tried to kill himself because of his depression and ended up curing his depression. Wow, now, that is the luck of the draw right there. Dr. The Rob? You know, really the guy to talk to would be uh, Walter Friedman, because what this guy did essentially was gave himself a lobotomy. Right. right. And the frontal lobotomy, as you recall from the psychotherapies episode, was the ice pick up above the eye, yeah, the severing, ocular, yeah. severing the tracks that lead to the frontal lobes. Well, this guy did it himself with a thirty-eight. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to know whether he actually had a remission of depression or just went into that kind of placid, (laughs) motiveless state that individuals who've had lobotomies go into. The article does say he lived happily ever after, but that could just mean wasn't depressed and not talk about whether or not he was actually fully functioning. I'm more interested in knowing what he had for breakfast. (laughs) Was it ketchup or was it not ketchup that he had on it? Mm. So you're saying the ketchup might have cured his depression? I'm no, he's a little bloody. brain matter, you know. Right. Sad trombone. Well, the, in England, they did like a the fry up, where it's kind of a melange of all sorts of different foodstuffs, and a little gray matter on the side might have uh, might have been delectable. Would have added some very odd to see flavor in British cooking. Yeah. Oh, there's bone in my brains.
In the news, from the Jakarta Post, December 2012, depression due to economic hardship was blamed as having caused a mother, Dina Yanuarti of West Java, to kill her two children before taking her own life. The bodies of the three were found in their house by Dina's brother. They were all found hanged with scarfs. Oh, that's particularly inventive. One day prior, the whole family, including Dina's husband, went to an Islamic boarding school seeking medical treatment for Dina's depression. Unfortunately, the facility only accepted male patients. Oh, nice. They So they dropped off the husband at his rented room in the provincial capital where he worked, and Dina and her kids carried on to their home. Dina had been suffering from depression for several months since giving birth to her second son. Oh, postpartum. Postpartum depression. They try and get treatment. And as forward-thinking as they are, uh, they won't take in a woman as opposed to a man. Exactly. No co-ed mental hospitals for you. And so there was nowhere that only took women? If there was somewhere that took women, surely uh, she would go Dina had reportedly received medication from a number of mental hospitals, including the Siswara Mental Hospital in West Bandung Regency, and underwent treatment at the hospital every two weeks. But I guess in this certain circumstance, mm. it wasn't available or... Just didn't go. I'm not sure. We'll get to it next week. Oh, no, wait. We're all dead. This is, yeah. I can't even imagine. I mean, I can't imagine somebody feeling so low that they want to kill their children. But to actually hang them with scarves is pretty rough and tumble. I mean, that's well, a. They I might guess, have been really soft. Soft scarves. <laughs> a gentle hug to carry you into the after. This is terrible, I know. But Just really tight around your neck. I would want to be hanged with a scarf. I think. If you're going to be hanged? Rather than a rope. Well, the kids were four and one. Oh, man. Not necessarily a lot of fight. I guess a scarf would do it. Really, though, the one-year-old, you could have just left it because on its own it wouldn't survive. Oh, yeah, but dad was going to come back from work oh, at some point yeah. in time, right? You're not think Maybe you're not thinking so logically when... Uh... When you're suffering depression. Yeah, I mean, that that's really it. Like, that's that's why it hurts us to think about this, because you start to go, well, what's the, well, I, you try and think of rational reasons, and you can't, and you realize it's irrational, and that you can't help it, and that that's why it sucks. That's the only piece that I found. I, there's a lot of depression suicide news stories, and I just didn't want to go, and here's another person that killed themselves, so I didn't. You didn't want to be here all day? <laughs> yeah. And I couldn't find really much in the way of good news. Yeah, one thing that we uh, didn't point out in the science section is that globally more than 350 million people of all ages suffered from depression, according to WHO. So out of like seven... The band, the WHO. <laughs> not the World Health Organization. <laughs> Roger Daltrey is particularly interested yeah, in this. So those numbers may be off. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. No, because he's, he's chewed a lot. He's probably done a head count, right? <laughs> I mean, you got 7 billion people in the world, so 350 million people, that's uh, about 2% of the world population? Five. 5%. 5%. The leading cause of disability worldwide and is a major contributor to the global burden of disease. Yeah, because you think about it, like if you've got 5% of people being bummed out, that's 5% of people who aren't doing their jobs, right? They're, right. they're not contributing much to society. They Again, I don't want to think I'm blaming them. How dare you not contribute to society? They can't <laughs> Where's help Where's my donut? Listen, if anybody doesn't contribute to society and is to blame for it, it's me. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to let me sure. get that out right there. If you could fix these people, that's 5% more production, 5% more happy people on the planet, 5% more people who aren't, say, lashing out because they're unhappy, and that lashing out causes ripples of unhappiness through other people who don't, who aren't depressed. I mean, we've sort of known about depression now for long enough that maybe we've seen, like, trends over time. Like, yeah. is incidence of depression increasing as a percentage of the population, or is it decreasing, or is it staying kind of flat? Like, was there 5% of the world depressed? 5,000 years ago? 
It just was like a lot less people. This opens up the whole can of worms known as psychiatric epidemiology. That itself is a science which really only came into its own probably in the last 50 years. None of a sample. What syndrome are you tracking? How well are you tracking it? What methodologies are you using? One of the problems is the shifting definition of a syndrome through time. As we come through the 20th century, as we've seen, the definition of what depression is changes. So in the 1930s, which was when we started to try and figure out at a population level even just very basic questions. One of the first questions in psychiatric epidemiology was, do individuals with psychiatric disorders drift down in the socioeconomic strata and end up on skid row? Or is there something about skid row that causes psychiatric problems? It's a little little, uh, depressed chicken and egg. At that point, with really very sort of poorly defined syndromes or very, very, very rudimentary understanding of uh, sociology, conditions of disease, uh, researchers went out uh, marching into the streets and they said, by golly, it appears to be both. There appears to be some drift down, but by far much more common is the genesis of psychiatric disorders because of really squalid living conditions. Not something that we would find terribly surprising now, but then that was sort of like, oh, wow. Wait a minute. It sucks to be poor? Yeah. Because the drift down hypothesis was was by far the most believed hypothesis, because you've got to remember, this was the era of eugenics and Darwinian sort of social engineering when the default position was, well, of course, we're all robust and healthy. Um, Nobody really thinking about white men from middle class or above homes are robust and healthy and get education opportunities and treated when they're sick and screw all the rest of you. So this was sort of the, the, the beginning of kind of cracking into the causes and conditions of social inequity. And so it's like this kind of there's an environmental factor to it yeah. that has to be taken into consideration. Yeah. So to answer your question, 5,000 years ago, what was the rate of depression? We have no idea. Now, what? Ep- now, the data that we have over the last 50 or 60 years, most of it would suggest that rates of psychiatric disorders are stable. Now, the data itself would show increasing numbers, but what's probably happening is we're getting better methods and better at Mm -hmm. identifying. So what we're probably doing is converging on the true rates. Right. The reporting has gone up. The quality of of reporting has improved. The methodology has improved. We're starting to stabilize the syndromes that we're going after. And so we're, we're finally starting to come to grips with just exactly the global burden of uh, psychiatric disorder. Which so no, is... one's, no one's found cave paintings, little frowny faces, <laughs> and, uh, you know, a little uh, Well, you if know, you're depressed, you don't make that art. Or, or hieroglyphic, <laughs> a hieroglyphic of, uh, you know, uh, somebody shambling along. You know. Yeah, the cave painters just didn't get out of their stone that morning. This yeah. is the buffalo I was going to hunt, but <laughs> meh. Yeah, nothing like that. Don't have a, uh, you know, any, uh, any, any. Just the anecdotal stuff yeah. like um, Hippocrates or Avicenna or Burton. Burton actually had depression when Burton. he wrote Robert Burton, um, Anatomy of Melancholy. You oh. mentioned him earlier. Right. He actually had depression, which is why he wrote about it. Will we ever have a cure for depression? That's a good question. First, you have to tell me what you mean by depression and which kind of depression we're talking about. Sounds like a no. Uh, <laughs> um, it sounds like doctors speak for no well, way, he, no how. He already said we do. It's ketamine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just going to keep people on a ketamine drip. That would make for a very interesting world. I'm fascinated by that um, National Geographic 
a series on uh, drugs Inc. It's called, uh-huh. and every episode they do a specific drug, and they like they literally talk about do it. a specific drug. Well, they, they okay. <laughs> so now we're gonna do some heroin. We're uh, heating it up here. Well, they have people on who are on the oh, drug, okay. right? They yeah, have, they but not the host. It's not, not like World's Worst no Jobs, host. where the guy like World's Worst Drugs to be addicted to, and he lines up and tries it out. There's no host. It's that whole intervention style, like, you know, omnipotent camera. We're going to have to make that show happen. And they did one on ketamine, and ketamine, it puts you in this, like, trance-like state. It's called the K-hole. Oh, okay. <laughs> the k and you're you're in this ridiculous trance like state where evidently you hallucinate like whole dream worlds. Okay. So I don't think you could have people on a drip and have them like function in like can a we, really. Can we have know, a ketamine episode like a like an alcohol episode? <laughs> Not with <laughs> me participating. <laughs> no, you can't get us that. <laughs> what, you, if, what if we told everybody we were depressed? Not with me participating. <laughs> Now, I actually listened to a podcast that were, they were talking about the controversy about the evolutionary benefit of depression. Mm. Oh, God, oh. this drives me crazy. Yeah, there was the, the theory by evolutionary psychologist Randolph Nessie. Is oh, that, that sounds like a made-up name. Oh, no, he's just... He can't help he's that he's just, just a sea monster, that's all. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry, it's the sea monster science. He's, he's not an evolutionary psychologist, he's, he's a physician, actually. He wrote the book, Why We Get Sick, it's about evolutionary medicine. Oh, okay, so yeah. I was, I was going to say that DSM stands for uh, Diagnostic Sea Monster. Oh, nice, yeah. Uh, sometimes it's important to be ambitious, sometimes it's not. Low mood helps us to recognize when our ambitions are too lofty. When life is thwarting us, depression makes us rethink our goals, scale back our ambitions, and follow a different path is basically his... uh... Wow, this is like a slacker Bible, this guy's theory. I haven't read that book, but I've certainly read a number of the evolutionary explanations of depression, and uh, I find them all just ridiculous. They don't, to me actually have anything to do with what people who are actually suffering from depression are going through. So I've seen the explanation that says, well, when people are depressed, they're less likely to be thinking in an emotional way, so their thoughts tend to be more realistic. Whereas when you talk to people who are in the grip of the depression, they'll often tell you, I can't think at all. And certainly their thoughts don't necessarily have anything to do with reality. Right. Like, like yeah. a, you know, a woman who is postpartum depression and she murders her children. Yeah, although that would be sort of a more the more severe end of depression. But how would an evolutionary scientist explain that? One of my concerns about evolutionary psychological explanations is that they can be pan-adaptationist, meaning every kind of human behavior must have evolved, therefore it's adaptive. Right. Whereas it's just clear that not everything about us is adaptive. For instance, our blood is red. That's not adaptive or unadaptive. It just is. Right. Mm-hmm. I would tend to see depression as this is just one of the QWERTY keyboards of having a really gigantic <laughs> evolved <laughs> nervous system where we've got new bits trying to talk to old bits. Right. And be 5% like, of it are just kind of quirky. Trying just- to shoehorn new RAM onto old Z80 processors. There's just going to be problems. This podcast will appeal to both medical nerds and computer <laughs> nerds. <laughs> That's such a massive market that we're appealing to. Pop culture? A movie that I like a lot, The Virgin Suicides, which was Sofia Coppola's uh, feature film debut. Mm, as a director? Correct. And it's based on a novel. It's about a family of sisters who you know, spoiler alert, uh, commit suicide. It's kind of in the title. How many sisters are there? How, As, many, how many virgins are there and how many sisters are there? Well, there are four sisters and one of them is not a virgin. Oh, I want my money back. <laughs> She's the token like, non-virgin. Yes, yeah. You know, to show that the, it's equal rights suicides. Played by Kirsten Dunst. Uh, and they should have called it 
three virgins and a dirty slut. <laughs> That's like a sitcom. There's a sitcom title in there for sure. I watched this film and it's it's told from the perspective of some of the neighborhood boys. These girls live in a very repressive household and they're not allowed to go out and date. And it's set in the 70s. They're all beautiful blonde girls. So all the boys are in love with them. They're all trying to get them to come out and have fun and hang out and all the rest of that stuff. And mm-hmm. it's kind of this downward spiral that gets out of control and then the girls start taking their lives, right? It's a feel-good movie of the summer. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola was the executive producer on it, and he put up the money for it and all the rest of that stuff. And so I was just kind of like, okay, this is really just Francis Ford Coppola directing by proxy. He's like trying to help his daughter out, and he's just there on set telling her what to do every step of the way and blah, blah, blah. But then she turns out Lost in Translation, which I also liked, and so I began to think, oh, you know what? She actually knows what she's doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Virgin Suicides, I recommend it highly. You might be depressed after watching it. I put it in the vein of, uh, you know, uh, Revenge of the Sith, right? You know, <laughs> you know that it's going to end with Darth Vader, right? But you're still in Titanic, but you still really kind of enjoy the journey along sure. the way. Okay. And when yeah. you name the movie Virgin Suicides, you know, there's going to be some suicide. There's some virgins and they're committing suicide. Yeah. Uh, more than one. Mastercrafted storytelling. Joe, what is the plot of brain candy it's a kids in the hall comedy movie very over the top ridiculous characters about a an antidepressant drug called gleaminex uh that Mm. uh kind of gets bypassed all the testing because it's so successful and becomes wildly popular in the movie in in that basically almost everybody in the world ends up taking it because it's it's a brain candy it's a it's a brain candy that makes you happy the problem is that there is a side effect that many people get stuck inside their happiest memory yeah, because and become this, catatonic. This is the trick. That that drug doesn't actually make them happy. It makes them remember their happiest memory. Yeah. Oh. And then they kind of get caught in this like Mobius loop of that like happiest memory. Oh, it's like so being like, stuck in the holodeck. Yeah, they're like catatonic, right? Because they're just like, ah. And just loving that moment, right? right? My favorite scene in the whole movie is they give it to this little old lady and she remembers her happiest moment. And it's when, oh, I remember when my son and, and the grandkids came over for the for Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever it was. And you see uh, Dave Foley come in with these two like screaming kids in tow. And he like walks in the front door. He's like, hey, mom, how's it going? He like walks to the room, like grabs like a drumstick off the turkey, takes a bite of it, socks back a beer. And then like, all right, kids, time to go. And then like they charge out the front door again. See you next year mom they were in the house for like a grand total like 30 seconds and she's like oh it was heaven it was wonderful right i just laughed till i cried but that was by far the funniest moment in the movie it's pretty yeah not good and after that the strength and the problem of this show is their ability to combine both ridiculously outrageous humor and the darkest most disturbing depressing stuff about human nature yeah right the things that people are the happiest about are all so ridiculous or dark or surprisingly off like there's the the one guy remembers the best coffee he's ever had but the thing was like another guy had urinated in it like (laughs) and that was urinating it was that guy's best memory (laughs) and the other guy remembered how frothy and tasty the coffee was um I like that's this a win-win. Movie. That's that's referred to as a win-win. It is. I mean, if they could only just get over their odd kinks and live together, they wouldn't need Gleaminex. Yeah, you know, he could pee in the coffee and be happy, and the other guy could drink the coffee and be happy, and everybody would know what's going on. Precisely. Come on, let's let's love our kinks. But that's what makes it be not that entertaining a movie because yeah. the whole way through, you just 
you're constantly being reminded that a lot of things that you enjoy are fake and meaningless. Well, and, and the like, construction of it too. comedians for telling me that. I mean, it, you, they show their roots in sketch comedy. Yeah. Because this was their one and only feature film yep. effort, right? And after that, after this, they couldn't stand to be in the same room with each other for like <laughs> 10 years. They really show their sketch comedy roots because every little bit in it is kind of just a vignette. And it's yeah. there's, there's like one razor thin through line in that the scientist played by Kevin McDonald who developed it is kind of like, maybe we shouldn't be forcing this. And they're like, My, the, the drug company is like, everyone in the world's going to take it. We're going to make billions, right? right? Other than that, it was almost just like little self-contained sketches. Yeah, self-contained sketches where they had, they forced themselves to talk talk about this Gleaminex drug to keep it like on topic. Yeah. It, it's not a bad movie. I, I think it's certainly a lot of fun to watch, but I think you're going to be uncomfortable while you do it. Yeah. And as long as you recognize that, I think that can make it more enjoyable. If you like the kids in the hall, you will seriously laugh three or four times. Uh, but that's all you're going to get. And, and I think our ca- caustic soda jerks are going to get more out of it than the average person yes. as well. It's, it's dark and funny, which is kind of like us. Yeah. We're bigger than penicillin. <laughs> Dr. Rob, you watched Melancholia. Lars von Trier. So, of course, he's brutalizing the audience the entire time. (laughs) Yeah, that's the way we like it. The main plot is about a new body that enters the solar system, orbits close to Earth. And all the astronomers say, don't worry, it's just going to go around the Earth and take off. And there's this subgroup of conspiracy theorists on the Internet who say, no, it's not. It's going to come crashing into the Earth. Well, it turns out the conspiracy theorists are right. As it becomes clear that this thing is going to cataclysmically destroy the Earth, this has all been seen through the eyes of, oh, spoiler alerts, one particular family which has a depressed member. Okay. Okay. Who is extremely outrageous and dysfunctional when life is normal. But then when the world is actually going to end is the only person who is uh, sane because uh, she's the only one that can actually handle it, tolerate. Well, of course, it's the end of the world. It's been the end of my world for decades. (laughs) Oh, my God. This actually sounds really interesting. It's a very interesting movie. This is the most interested I've been in a Lars von Trier movie in ages. Yeah, yeah. You should check it out. If somebody actually pitched me that, I might have gone and seen it in the theater. And it would have been worth seeing in the theater because the visual effects and the cinematography are quite stunning, especially the, the use of the color palette. And contrast to kind of indicate different moods. Yeah, I heard Lars von Trier, and I was like, ugh, God. <laughs> Where it's were like, you when we needed you, Dr. Rob? Going to see Lars von I was von watching Trier Melancholia. <laughs> Where were you guys? I, to, we didn't hear from him that it was cool. <laughs> going to see Lars von Trier movie is, like, feels too much like work. I, I watched The Beaver Oh, uh, with, yeah, you, with Mad Max. Wait, I didn't know you were a porn was fan. It, like, when you say that, do you mean Mel Gibson? Yes. Oh. And uh, Mystique was also in it. The uh, Young Mystique. So, oh, Jennifer Lawrence. And also but, Chekhov. Oh, Young Mystique. Okay. Yeah. From the che- new Star Trek. Oh. oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're making me... Chekhov He's not from the Chekhov. New... <laughs> He's the guy who played Chekhov. <laughs> Anton Yelchin and uh, Jodie Foster. <laughs> wow. She hasn't been any... <laughs> made a frowny face. Sci-fi genre movies. <laughs> except for contact. So Mad Max becomes depressed and his wife kicks him out. Uh, he finds a beaver puppet... A hand puppet of a beaver uh-huh. in a dumpster. Then he Mel Gibson does this. Yes. Yeah, this is interesting. He and he tries to commit suicide in uh, the motel, right, or a hotel actually, because he's several floors up. I like this movie actually quite a lot. I like the trailer, but it was in theaters so short in such a short span. Like yeah. it was in and out in like a week. And I think this is the time when Mel Gibson was being all crazy. 
Yes. So that might in real life that might have had to, to do with some of the promotion of the movie. I'm not 100 percent sure about that. Yeah. I like it because it was it was very much in some ways a dark comedy. The scene where he tries to kill himself, he ties his tie to the shower rod, and okay. then when he jumps, when he lets puts his weight on it, falls it down. falls down. Yeah. He goes to the balcony on the other side of the hotel, dragging the curtain rod with his tie, oh, okay. and then he tries to jump off all the time. He's got this hand puppet on. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and is right, he talking to him while he's doing well, this? Well, right before, right before yes. he jumps off, he's about to jump off, and the beaver says, "Oi." <laughs> And he's like, what? And then he falls over and television lands on his head. He wakes up. Uh, and from this point on, the rest of the movie, the, really the only way he communicates is through this beaver, puppet. Pu- through this beaver puppet. He's also the, an executive. He's basically the owner of this toy company. And the toy company's just been sinking. Um, so he reunites more or less with his family. There's the scenes where he's trying to reconcile with his wife, who is excited that he's he's normal again. He also has this uh, totally lower class British accent, like Ray Winstone thing going on. Okay. Whenever he talks to the Beaver, right? Now, okay. does does he only talk to the Beaver, or does are they His two lips separate move. entities? His lips move when 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 the Beaver talks, he talks. Okay, it's right. not like. But Mel Gibson doesn't speak as his he does. character. He does again. once in a while. Okay, like there's but one scene rarely. where he's like. He's talking to one of his workmates, and he's like, oh, I, I just don't know what to do about my family. Then the beaver just cuts him off oh. and starts talking. Interrupts. And like, like, we got to hey. do this. We got to do that. We gotta... So the beaver becomes the dominant personality. A- absolutely. Basically. Absolutely. Okay. And so he uh, he has this great relationship with his youngest son, who's like, I don't know, six or seven. Right. Because his... the son can get down when talking with a beaver. <laughs> exactly. Right? His, uh, his older son, uh, Anton Yelchin, hates him. Right, because he knows he he thinks he's been cataloging all the things that are similar because he's worried about becoming depressive as well. He's right. worried about becoming his father, basically. Yeah, there's these love making scenes between uh, with the puppet Mad Max and <laughs> Jodie Foster, <laughs> and the puppet being in between them and stuff like that. It's very dark. There is a, a yeah, spoiler alert. I, I totally want to watch this. Gonna, oh, ah. spoiler alert! At the, towards the end of the movie, he cuts off his hand. With the beaver on it. Uh-huh. To rid himself of the beaver. Okay. Okay. So there's a lot of dark spots in it. It's not really, I wouldn't call it a comedy. That doesn't sound anything like depression. <laughs> I just want to insert the medical opinion. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting how they show the depression in the beginning because it's very much like he Textbook. just sleeps all day. Yeah. He doesn't care about anything. Um, so so I, don't, that- I don't imagine that any of your patients would put on a beaver hand and get a new personality and, have you, have you and ever recover heard- in that way and only deal with reality through the beaver. Have Not you ever so heard, far. Have you ever heard of anything like that? No. This sounds like one. <laughs> this sounds like one mental disorder curing another one. This is Hollywood iatry. Right. Yeah. This is right. not psychiatry. Okay. And IMDb trivia: Jim Carrey and Steve Carroll were previously attached to play the lead character. Steve Carell. That that certainly would have put it more firmly in the camp of dark comedy. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can tell by just by the fact they tried to cast those two guys first it shows you what their intention was. Yeah. And then getting Mel Gibson on board because he's this big famous name, but then nobody. He's oh. going to watch this thinking it's going to be a comedy. No, no. I know why they got Mel Gibson on this. They went, well, it's dark. Why don't we get this crazy racist motherfucker who's no, in the news everywhere and make it really dark? No, because I think Torn's right. I think when this movie came out, it was right at the time that was happening, which means they shot this like a year before. Oh, maybe. Because we'll they only shoot these the things like a year before they come out. Furthermore, yeah. the B story didn't really have any comedic elements to it right. whatsoever oh. with uh, between Yelchin and uh, Mystique. All right. <laughs> you and your insistence. Check off and Mystique. <laughs> 
I saw a movie, Revolutionary Road, mm-hmm. which very bleak. Uh, it's set in the 50s in the USA. You know, this whole like the golden age of America. Right. And it's Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio are this like perfect American couple. Uh, except for the fact that there's this undercurrent of depression. and right. uh, Exactly the type of movie that I don't want to watch. It was phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Like it was one of my favorite movies of the year that mm. it came out, the year that it came out. Wow. But it is not a feel-good movie. Right. This is... This is like Mad Men times 10. Are there any superhero actors in it? It's very contained movie. Like uh, Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio are in 90% of the movie. And there's there's only a few scenes where Leonardo is at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's an insurance salesman. So he hates his job. And there's all these moments where you think they're going to have a Hollywood ending. And that they're going to dig themselves out of it. And they're going to like, they're going to recover. And they're going to save this, what, what you know, was obviously... A very love-filled relationship, right? Mm. The Revolutionary Road is a dead end. Ooh. It's, again, a wonderfully crafted movie that uh, it's hard to recommend people to go see because people probably think you're deranged for recommending it. TV shows and cartoons? Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has a super depressed robot. Marvin the Paranoid Android. Okay. Brain he's not actually paranoid. I don't really think he's much of an android either. He's <laughs> no. kind of anthropomorphic, but he doesn't really look like a human. Yeah, even no matter what he's looked like, he's been... What a misnomer. Yeah. They, it was just to play on words. Right. We need a better the depressed, I don't know, robot. It doesn't work. <laughs> Marvin the Melancholic Mannequin. <laughs> Ooh, that's closer. That's closer. Yeah. Mechanical Mannequin. Or, to, you know. Yeah, yeah. We, we can figure it out. Right. <laughs> We'll hold a contest. He's the ship's robot on board the starship's starship Heart of Gold and apparently has a brain the size of a planet, which I think is the reason for his depression. They I, just get him to, like, close hatches. They, and they get him to do completely meaningless like jobs, that. like uh, park cars or go pick up the people who end up on the ship and bring them to the bridge. And he's like, I have the, a brain the size of a planet, and you want me to go get the... Okay, fine. Right. Like, he's a robot, so he has to listen to what everybody does. But he's hyper-competent and never gets to do anything approaching his own abilities. There's also Eeyore from <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. Don't you feel lucky you have a tail to swat away the flies? Here's his famous reply. Oh. Rather have no flies and no tail. <laughs> <laughs> he's a donkey uh-huh. with a detachable tail. Uh, in Disney's films, he's somewhat less caustic and sarcastic uh, than in the original uh, Milne's stories oh really because yeah, of yeah. course i've never read the original stories you only ever like see the cartoons as a kid right when someone says how do you do just say you didn't <laughs> <laughs> and he's also full of sawdust apparently oh yeah okay yeah because he's a stuffed animal yeah, right? yeah, yeah yeah in the tick animated series i think it's the very first episode you briefly see bipolar bear <laughs> who says this-, this looks like a job for bipolar bear <laughs> but i can't seem to get out of bed this week <laughs> <laughs> I do not remember that, but I do like the animated series. I totally remember, and I'll bet you half the time that hero is awesome. Now, Dr. Rob, is there a, is, bipolar is a form of depression? Is there bipolar and also monopolar depression? Well, bipolar disorder would be mania and depression. Okay. And to, to contrast that from major depressive disorder, that's sometimes referred to as unipolar depression. Oh, I was close. Mm, mono. Mono, uni. uni. You don't ride a monocycle. Not yet. When do you choose mono or uni? One's probably Greek and one's Latin, Latin, right? I don't know. Who cares? One's when you get kissed. Not a very caustic topic. (laughs) I've had mono. Did you have uni, though? (laughs) I don't. And by that, I mean the (laughs) unicorn on Dungeons (laughs) and Dragons cartoon. (laughs) (laughs) 
or unitard. Sounds, sounds like you did. Were you, were you wearing a unitard? Or were time? you wearing a monotard? <laughs> and then, of course, there's Droopy. Uh, droopy dog. dog. Created by Tex Avery. Of course. For uh, MGM Cartoon Studio in 1943. Essentially the polar opposite wow. of Avery's other famous MGM character, the loud and wacky Screwy Squirrel. That nobody knows oh. about. <laughs> Who's Screwy Squirrel? He was like their Bugs Bunny analog. Oh. Right, of course. There's not even a picture of Screwy Squirrel the, the on the Wikipedia page. page for Screwy Squirrel. <laughs> I know Screwy Squirrel. He's really? got a big nose. He, Screwy Squirrel looks like somebody modern day said, let's make an old time an animated squirrel. squirrel. Oh, he was and years ahead of his time. Yeah, like he'd be in a Pixar show well, about I think the know, problem, throwback he, cartoons. Yeah, he's just a little too <laughs> on the nose. Like anybody could have said, oh, Bugs Bunny's good. Let's make... A Bugs Bunny character that's a different animal. How about a squirrel? He'll mm-hmm. look like this. Like, there's no surprises involved. You know what? It's over. Say, Axandle, recording the Horse Track Hooligans program really leaves my throat raw and irritated. I've got just the thing for that. The Caustic Soda Radio Hour. A richer, bolder, more pleasing podcast. Say, is that the one with the unfiltered, full-bodied recording by Mr. Mike Leeson Esquire? Say, it sure is. Now, can I find that at my local pharmacy or dry goods store? (laughs) You'll only find a barrel of crackers or plug tobacco there. No, Caustic Soda can be found at causticsodapodcast.com. Will there be Gibson Girls there? Heck no, but you could find videos, pictures, links, and even caustic soda ringtones for your wireless set. That sounds great. Say, how much is this going to cost me? That's just it, Flatcap. Caustic soda is free to download. But if you like what you hear, feel free to make a donation. Yeah, a few spondulics will keep the gas lights on and the laughs at full gallop. And if you don't agree that caustic soda is the richer, smoother, more pleasing podcast, send your questions and comments to info at causticsodapodcast.com and rate and review them on iTunes. Caustic Soda Podcast, a superlative blend of science and comedy with almost no polio. I totally want to eat roasted dolphin. I would if it wasn't for the uh, the Kurtzfeld Yakov Kurtzfeld Yakov disease. That's what I was thinking of. Or uh, Kuru is also the. Uh... If you just like a little a little taste, right? You know, throwing, you know just a nibble. Yeah. Aren't you worried that if you eat a uh, dolphin, you might uh... become aware dolphin? Becoming aware dolphin. Yeah. Fuck, that would be awesome. I know. I Col- wish. Except, Col- except, what if you weren't by the ocean when the full moon came out? <laughs> <laughs> we, we find Kevin in his bed. <laughs> No, no. <laughs> we find him dead in the morning, dried out, but back to being human, and just can't figure out what happened. In the middle of the night, that's right. He turned into a were dolphin, died of dehydration because he was couldn't get to any water, and then turned back into human. And we just find his body, and you're just like, oh, this would be a, this would be an adventure for the great brain. You can sure. only kill him with bullets made out of coral. Why is there a lot of water up at the top of his head? <laughs>
Uh, Torn just finished off the prawn cocktail chips. Really? Do mm. you actually enjoy those? <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> I know. See, now I haven't is, gotten to the aftertaste yet. This is where it would be fun. <laughs> you know, I would love to. Uh, I mean, we've all seen Being John Malkovich. Uh huh. You know, I, right now I'd like to try Being Torn Atkinson. What do those chips taste like to him? <laughs> to him? Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. Right? That's a really good point. I they, they cannot taste like what they taste like to me. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. It was a flavor man was not meant to know. That's why Torn can handle it. I, yeah, I like even better that they were in the garbage and I pulled them out so we could look at the bag and Torrance just like dived right in. Well, that's wow. just made them better. 